Chapters 111 through 114 of Of Human Bondage. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Of Human Bondage by W. Somerset Maud. Chapter 111. Next day Philip began to work again, but the end which he had expected within a few weeks did not come. The weeks passed into months. The winter wore away, and in the parks the trees burst into bud and into leaf. A terrible lassitude settled upon Philip. Time was passing, though it went with such heavy feet, and he thought that his youth was going, and soon he would have lost it, and nothing would have been accomplished. His work seemed more aimless now that there was the certainty of his leaving it. He became skillful in the designing of costumes, and though he had no inventive faculty, acquired quickness in the adaption of French fashions to the English market. Sometimes he was not displeased with his drawings, but they always bungled them in the execution. He was amused to notice that he suffered from a lively irritation when his ideas were not adequately carried out. He had to walk warily. Whenever he suggested something original, Mr. Sampson turned it down. Their customers did not want anything outré. It was a very respectable class of business, and when you had a connection of that sort it wasn't worthwhile taking liberties with it. Once or twice he spoke sharply to Philip. He thought the young man was getting a bit above himself because Philip's ideas did not always coincide with his own. "'You jolly well take care, my fine young fellow, or one of these days you'll find yourself in the street.' Philip longed to give him a punch in the nose, but he restrained himself. After all, it could not possibly last much longer, and then he would be done with all these people forever. Sometimes in a comic desperation he cried out that his uncle must be made of iron. What a constitution! The ills he suffered from would have killed any decent person twelve months before. When at last the news came that the vicar was dying, Philip, who had been thinking of other things, was taken by surprise. It was in July, and in another fortnight he was to have gone for his holiday. He received a letter from Mrs. Foster saying the doctor did not give Mr. Carey many days to live, and if Philip wished to see him again he must come at once. Philip went to the buyer and told him he wanted to leave. Mr. Sampson was a decent fellow, and when he knew the circumstances made no difficulties. Philip said good-bye to the people in his department. The reason of his leaving had spread among them in an exaggerated form, and they thought he had come into a fortune. Mrs. Hodges had tears in her eyes when she shook hands with him. "'I suppose we shan't often see you again,' she said. "'I'm glad to get away from Lynn's,' he answered. It was strange, but he was actually sorry to leave these people whom he thought he had loathed, and when he drove away from the house in Harrington Street it was with no exultation. He had so anticipated the emotions he would experience on this occasion that now he felt nothing. He was as unconcerned as though he were going for a few days' holiday. "'I've got a rotten nature,' he said to himself. "'I look forward to things awfully, and then when they come I'm always disappointed.' He reached Blackstable early in the afternoon. Mrs. Foster met him at the door, and her face told him that his uncle was not yet dead. "'He's a little better today,' she said. "'He's got a wonderful constitution.' She led him into the bedroom where Mr. Carey lay on his back. He gave Philip a slight smile, in which was a trace of satisfied cunning, 
at having circumvented his enemy once more. "'I thought it was all up with me yesterday,' he said in an exhausted voice. "'They'd all given me up, hadn't you, Mrs. Foster? You've got a wonderful constitution, there's no denying that. There's life in the old dog yet.' Mrs. Foster said that the vicar must not talk, it would tire him. She treated him like a child with kindly despotism, and there was something childish in the old man's satisfaction at having cheated all their expectations. It struck him at once that Philip had been sent for, and he was amused that he had been brought on a fool's errand. If he could only avoid another of his heart attacks he would get well enough in a week or two, and he had had the attacks several times before. He always felt as if he were going to die, but he never did. They all talked of his constitution, but they, none of them, knew how strong it was. "'Are you going to stay a day or two? he asked Philip, pretending to believe he had come down for a holiday. "'I was thinking of it,' Philip answered cheerfully. "'A breath of sea air will do you good.' Presently Dr. Wigram came, and after he had seen the vicar talk with Philip, he adopted an appropriate manner. "'I'm afraid it is the end this time, Philip,' he said. "'It'll be a great loss to all of us. I've known him for five and thirty years.' "'He seems well enough now,' said Philip. "'I'm keeping him alive on drugs, but it can't last. It was dreadful these last few days. I thought he was dead half a dozen times.' The doctor was silent for a minute or two, but at the gate he said suddenly to Philip, "'Has Mrs. Foster said anything to you?' "'What do you mean?' they're very superstitious these people she's got hold of an idea that he's got something on his mind and he can't die till he gets rid of it and he can't bring himself to confess it philip did not answer and the doctor went on of course it's nonsense he's led a very good life he's done his duty and he's been a good parish priest and i'm sure we shall all miss him he can't have anything to reproach himself with i very much doubt whether the next vicar will suit us half so well for several days Mr. Carey continued without change. His appetite, which had been excellent, left him, and he could eat little. Dr. Wigram did not hesitate now to still the pain of the neuritis which tormented him, and that, with the constant shaking of his palsied limbs, was gradually exhausting him. His mind remained clear. Philip and Mrs. Foster nursed him between them. She was so tired by the many months during which he had been attentive to all his wants that Philip insisted on sitting up with the patient so that she might have her night's rest. He passed the long hours in an armchair so that he should not sleep soundly, and read by the light of shaded candles the thousand and one nights. He had not read them since he was a little boy, and they brought back his childhood to him. Sometimes he sat and listened to the silence of the night. When the effects of the opiate wore off, Mr. Carey grew restless and kept him constantly busy. At last, early one morning, when the birds were chattering noisily in the trees, he heard his name called. He went up to the bed. Mr. Carey was lying on his back with his eyes looking at the ceiling. He did not turn them on Philip. Philip saw that sweat was on his forehead, and he took a towel and wiped it. "'Is that you, Philip?' the old man asked. Philip was startled because the voice was suddenly changed. It was hoarse and low. So would a man speak if he was cold with fear. Yes, do you want anything? There was a pause, and still the unseeing eyes stared at the ceiling. 
Then a twitch passed over the face. "'I think I'm going to die,' he said. "'Oh, what nonsense!' cried Philip. "'You're not going to die for years.' Two tears were wrung from the old man's eyes. They moved Philip horribly. His uncle had never betrayed any particular emotion in the affairs of life, and it was dreadful to see them now, for they signified a terror that was unspeakable. "'Send for Mr. Simmons,' he said. "'I want to take the communion.' Mr. Simmons was the curate. "'Now?' asked Philip. "'Soon, or else it'll be too late.' Philip went to awake Mrs. Foster, but it was later than he thought, and she was up already. He told her to send the gardener with a message, and he went back to his uncle's room. "'Have you sent for Mr. Simmons?' "'Yes.' There was a silence. Philip sat by the bedside and occasionally wiped the sweating forehead. "'Let me hold your hand, Philip.' The old man said at last. Philip gave him his hand, and he clung to it as to life for comfort in his extremity. Perhaps he had never really loved anyone in all his days, but now he turned instinctively to a human being. His hand was wet and cold. It grasped Philip's with feeble, despairing energy. The old man was fighting with the fear of death, and Philip thought that all must go through that. Oh, how monstrous it was, and they could believe in a God that allowed his creatures to suffer such a cruel torture. He had never cared for his uncle, and for two years he had longed every day for his death, but now he could not overcome the compassion that filled his heart. What a price it was to pay for being other than the beasts! They remained in silence broken only once by a low inquiry from Mr. Carey. Hasn't he come yet? At last the housekeeper came in softly to say that Mr. Simmons was there. He carried a bag in which were his surplice and his hood. Mrs. Foster brought the communion plate. Mr. Simmons shook hands silently with Philip, and then with professional gravity went to the sick man's side. Philip and the maid went out of the room. Philip walked round the garden all fresh and dewy in the morning. The birds were singing gaily. The sky was blue, but the air, salt-laden, was sweet and cool. The roses were in full bloom. The green of the trees, the green of the longs, was eager and brilliant. Philip walked, and as he walked he thought of the mystery which was proceeding in that bedroom. It gave him a peculiar emotion. Presently Mrs. Foster came out to him and said that his uncle wished to see him. The curate was putting his things back into the black bag. The sick man turned his head a little and greeted him with a smile. Philip was astonished, for there was a change in him, an extraordinary change. His eyes had no longer the terror-stricken look, and the pinching of his face had gone. He looked happy and serene. "'I'm quite prepared now,' he said, and his voice had a different tone in it. "'When the Lord sees fit to call me, I am ready to give my soul into his hands.' Philip did not speak. He could see that his uncle was sincere. It was almost a miracle. He had taken the body and blood of his Savior, and they had given him strength so that he no longer feared the inevitable passage into the night. He knew he was going to die. He was resigned. He only said one more thing. I shall rejoin my dear wife. It startled Philip. He remembered with what a callous selfishness his uncle had treated her, how obtuse he had been to her humble, devoted love. 
the curate, deeply moved, went away, and Mrs. Foster, weeping, accompanied him to the door. Mr. Carey, exhausted by his effort, fell into a light doze, and Philip sat down by the bed and waited for the end. The morning wore on, and the old man's breathing grew stertorous. The doctor came and said he was dying. He was unconscious, and he pecked feebly at the sheets. He was restless, and he cried out. Dr. Wigram gave him a hypodermic injection. It can't do any good now. He may die at any moment. The doctor looked at his watch, and then at the patient. Philip saw that it was one o'clock. Dr. Wigram was thinking of his dinner. It's no use your waiting, he said. There's nothing I can do, said the doctor. When he was gone, Mrs. Foster asked Philip if he would go to the carpenter, who was also the undertaker, and tell him to send up a woman to lay out the body. "'You want a little fresh air,' she said. "'It'll do you good.' The undertaker lived half a mile away. When Philip gave him his message, he said, "'When did the poor old gentleman die?' Philip hesitated. It occurred to him that it would seem brutal to fetch a woman to wash the body while his uncle still lived, and he wondered why Mrs. Foster had asked him to come. They would think he was in a great hurry to kill the old man off. He thought the undertaker looked at him oddly. He repeated the question. It irritated Philip. It was no business of his. When did the vicar pass away? Philip's first impulse was to say that it had just happened, but then it would seem inexplicable if the sick man lingered for several hours. He reddened and answered awkwardly. Oh, he isn't exactly dead yet. The undertaker looked at him in perplexity, and he hurried to explain. Mrs. Foster is all alone, and she wants a woman there. You understand, don't you? He may be dead by now. The undertaker nodded. Oh, yes, I see. I'll send someone up at once. When Philip got back to the vicarage, he went up to the bedroom. Mrs. Foster rose from her chair by the bedside. He's just as he was when you left, she said. She went down to get herself something to eat, and Philip watched curiously the process of death. There was nothing human now in the unconscious being that struggled feebly. Sometimes a muttered ejaculation issued from the loose mouth. The sun beat down hotly from a cloudless sky, but the trees in the garden were pleasant and cool. It was a lovely day. A bluebottle buzzed against the window-pane. Suddenly there was a loud rattle, it made Philip start, it was horribly frightening. A movement passed through the limbs, and the old man was dead. The machine had run down. The bluebottle buzzed noisily against the window-pane. End of chapter 111 Chapter 112 Josiah Graves, in his masterful way, made arrangements, becoming but economical, for the funeral, and when it was over came back to the vicarage with Philip. The will was in his charge, and with a due sense of the fitness of things he read it to Philip over an early cup of tea. It was written on half a sheet of paper, and left everything Mr. Carey had to his nephew. There was the furniture, about eighty pounds at the bank, twenty shares in the ABC Company, a few in Alsop's brewery, some in the Oxford Music Hall, and a few more in a London restaurant. They had been bought under Mr. Graves' direction, and he told Philip with satisfaction, "'You see, 
people must eat, they will drink, and they want amusement. You're always safe if you put your money in what the public thinks necessities. His words showed a nice discrimination between the grossness of the vulgar which he deplored but accepted, and the finer taste of the elect. Altogether in investments there was about five hundred pounds, and to that must be added the balance at the bank and what the furniture would fetch. It was riches to Philip. He was not happy, but infinitely relieved. Mr. Graves left him after they had discussed the auction which must be held as soon as possible, and Philip sat himself down to go through the papers of the deceased. The Reverend William Carey had prided himself on never destroying anything, and there were piles of correspondence dating back for fifty years and bundles upon bundles of neatly docketed bills. He had kept not only letters addressed to him, but letters which himself had written. There was a yellow packet of letters which he had written to his father in the forties when, as an Oxford undergraduate, he had gone to Germany for the long vacation. Philip read them idly. It was a different William Carey from the William Carey he had known, and yet there were traces in the boy which might, to an acute observer, have suggested the man. The letters were formal and a little stilted. He showed himself strenuous to see all that was noteworthy, and he described with a fine enthusiasm the castles of the Rhine. The falls of Schaffhausen made him offer reverent thanks to the all-powerful creator of the universe, whose works were wondrous and beautiful, and he could not help thinking that they who lived in sight of this handiwork of their blessed Maker must be moved by the contemplation to lead pure and holy lives. Among some bills Philip found a miniature which had been painted of William Carey soon after he was ordained. It represented a thin young curate with long hair that fell over his head in natural curls, with dark eyes, large and dreamy, and a pale, ascetic face. Philip remembered the chuckle with which his uncle used to tell him of the dozens of slippers which were worked for him by adoring ladies. The rest of the afternoon and all the evening Philip toiled through the innumerable correspondence. He glanced at the address and at the signature, then tore the letter in two, and threw it into the washing-basket by his side. Suddenly he came upon one signed Helen. He did not know the writing. It was thin, angular, and old-fashioned. It began, My dear William, and ended, Your affectionate sister. Then it struck him that it was from his own mother. He had never seen a letter of hers before, and her handwriting was strange to him. It was about himself. My dear William, Stephen wrote to you to thank you for your congratulations on the birth of our son and your kind wishes to myself. Thank God we are both well, and I am deeply thankful for the great mercy which has been shown me. Now that I can hold a pen, I want to tell you and dear Louisa myself how truly grateful I am to you both for all your kindness to me now and always since my marriage. I am going to ask you to do me a great favor. Both Stephen and I wish you to be the boy's godfather, and we hope that you will consent. I know I am not asking a small thing, for I am sure you will take the responsibilities of the position very seriously, but I am especially anxious that you should undertake this office, because you are a clergyman as well as the boy's uncle. I am very anxious for the boy's welfare, and I pray God night and day that he may grow into a good, 
honest and Christian man. With you to guide him, I hope that he will become a soldier in Christ's faith and be all the days of his life God-fearing, humble, and pious. Your affectionate sister, Helen. Philip pushed the letter away and, leaning forward, rested his face on his hands. It deeply touched and at the same time surprised him. He was astonished at its religious tone, which seemed to him neither mawkish nor sentimental. He knew nothing of his mother, dead now for nearly twenty years, but that she was beautiful, and it was strange to learn that she was simple and pious. He never thought of that side of her. He read again what she said about him, what she expected and thought about him. He had turned out very differently. He looked at himself for a moment. Perhaps it was better that she was dead. Then a sudden impulse caused him to tear up the letter. Its tenderness and simplicity made it seem peculiarly private. He had a queer feeling that there was something indecent in his reading what exposed his mother's gentle soul. He went on with the vicar's dreary correspondence. A few days later he went up to London and for the first time for two years entered by day the hall of St. Luke's Hospital. He went to see the secretary of the medical school. He was surprised to see him, and asked Philip curiously what he had been doing. Philip's experiences had given him a certain confidence in himself and a different outlook upon many things. Such a question would have embarrassed him before, but now he answered coolly, with a deliberate vagueness which prevented further inquiry, that private affairs had obliged him to make a break in the curriculum. He was now anxious to qualify as soon as possible. The first examination he could take was in midwifery and the diseases of women, and he put his name down to be a clerk in the ward devoted to feminine ailments. Since it was holiday time there happened to be no difficulty in getting a post as obstetric clerk. He arranged to undertake that duty during the last week of August and the first two of September. After this interview Philip walked through the medical school, more or less deserted, for the examinations at the end of the summer session were all over, and he wandered along the terrace by the riverside. His heart was full. He thought that now he could begin a new life, and he would put behind him all the errors, follies, and miseries of the past. The flowing river suggested that everything passed, was passing always, and nothing mattered. The future was before him rich with possibilities. He went back to Blackstable and busied himself with the setting up of his uncle's estate. The auction was fixed for the middle of August, when the presence of visitors for the summer holidays would make it possible to get better prices. Catalogues were made out and sent to the various dealers in second-hand books at Turkenbury, Maidstone, and Ashford. One afternoon Philip took it into his head to go over to Turkenbury and see his old school. He had not been there since the day when, with relief in his heart, he had left it with the feeling that thenceforward he was his own master. It was strange to wander through the narrow streets of Turkenbury, which he had known so well for many years. He looked at the old shops still there, still selling the same things, the booksellers with schoolbooks, highest works, and the latest novels in one window, and photographs of the cathedral and of the city in the other, the game shop with its cricket bats, fishing tackle, tennis rackets, and footballs, 
the tailor from whom he had got clothes all through his boyhood, and the fishmonger where his uncle, whenever he came to Tercanbury, bought fish. He wandered along the sordid street in which, behind a high wall, lay the red brick house which was the preparatory school. Further on was the gateway that led into King's School, and he stood in the quadrangle round which were the various buildings. It was just four, and the boys were hurrying out of school. He saw the masters in their gowns and mortarboards, and they were strange to him. It was more than ten years since he had left, and many changes had taken place. He saw the headmaster. He walked slowly down from the schoolhouse to his own, talking to a big boy who Philip supposed was in the sixth. He was little changed, tall, cadaverous, romantic as Philip remembered him, with the same wild eyes. But the black beard was streaked with grey now, and the dark sallow face was more deeply lined. Philip had an impulse to go up and speak to him, but he was afraid he would have forgotten him, and he hated the thought of explaining who he was. Boys lingered talking to one another, and presently some who had hurried to change came out to play fives. Others straggled out in twos and threes and went out of the gateway. Philip knew they were going up to the cricket ground. Others again went into the precincts to bat at the nets. Philip stood among them a stranger. One or two gave him an indifferent glance, but visitors attracted by the Norman staircase were not rare and excited little attention. Philip looked at them curiously. He thought with melancholy of the distance that separated him from them, and he thought bitterly how much he had wanted to do and how little done. It seemed to him that all those years, vanished beyond recall, had been utterly wasted. The boys, fresh and buoyant, were doing the same things that he had done. It seemed that not a day had passed since he left the school, and yet in that place where at least by name he had known everybody, now he knew not a soul. In a few years these two, others taking their place, would stand alien as he stood but the reflection brought him no solace. It merely impressed upon him the futility of human existence. Each generation repeated the trivial round. He wondered what had become of the boys who were his companions. They were nearly thirty now. Some would be dead, but others were married and had children. They were soldiers and parsons, doctors, lawyers. They were staid men who were beginning to put youth behind them. Had any of them made such a hash of life as he? He thought of the boy he had been devoted to. It was funny, he could not recall his name. He remembered exactly what he looked like, he had been his greatest friend. But his name would not come back to him. He looked back with amusement on the jealous emotions he had suffered on his account. It was irritating not to recollect his name. He longed to be a boy again like those he saw sauntering through the quadrangle so that, avoiding his mistakes, he might start fresh and make something more out of life. He felt an intolerable loneliness. He almost regretted the penury which he had suffered during the last two years since the desperate struggle merely to keep body and soul together had deadened the pain of living. In the sweat of thy brow shalt thou earn thy daily bread. It was not a curse upon mankind but the bomb which reconciled it to existence. But Philip was impatient with himself. He called to mind his idea of the pattern of life, 
the unhappiness he had suffered was no more than part of a decoration which was elaborate and beautiful. He told himself strenuously that he must accept with gaiety everything, dreariness and excitement, pleasure and pain, because it added to the richness of the design. He sought for beauty consciously, and he remembered how even as a boy he had taken pleasure in the Gothic cathedral as one saw it from the precincts. He went there and looked at the massive pile, gray under the cloudy sky, with the central tower that rose like the praise of men to their god. But the boys were batting at the nets, and they were lissom and strong and active. He could not help hearing their shouts and laughter. The cry of youth was insistent, and he saw the beautiful thing before him only with his eyes. End of chapter 112 Chapter 113 At the beginning of the last week in August Philip entered upon his duties in the district. They were arduous, for he had to attend an average of three confinements a day. The patient had obtained a card from the hospital some time before, and when her time came it was taken to the porter by a messenger, generally a little girl, who was then sent across the road to the house in which Philip lodged. At night the porter, who had a latch-key, himself came over and awoke Philip. It was mysterious then to get up in the darkness and walk through the deserted streets of the south side. At those hours it was generally the husband who brought the card. If there had been a number of babies before he took it for the most part with surly indifference, but if newly married he was nervous and then sometimes strove to allay his anxiety by getting drunk. Often there was a mile or more to walk during which Philip and the messenger discussed the conditions of labor and the costs of living. Philip learnt about the various trades which were practiced on that side of the river. He inspired confidence in the people among whom he was thrown, and during the long hours that he waited in a stuffy room, the woman in labor lying on a large bed that took up half of it, her mother and the midwife talked to him as naturally as they talked to one another. The circumstances in which he had lived during the last two years had taught him several things about the life of the very poor which it amused them to find he knew, and they were impressed because he was not deceived by their little subterfuges. He was kind, and he had gentle hands, and he did not lose his temper. They were pleased because he was not above drinking a cup of tea with them, and when the dawn came and they were still waiting they offered him a slice of bread and dripping. He was not squeamish and could eat most things now with a good appetite. Some of the houses he went to in filthy courts off a dingy street huddled against one another without light or air were merely squalid, but others unexpectedly, though dilapidated with worm-eaten floors and leaking roofs, had the grand air. You found in them oak balusters exquisitely carved, and the walls had still their paneling. These were thickly inhabited. One family lived in each room, and in the daytime there was the incessant noise of children playing in the court. The old walls were the breeding-place of vermin. The air was so foul that often, feeling sick, Philip had to light his pipe. The people who dwelt here lived from hand to mouth. Babies were unwelcome. The man received them with surly anger. The mother would despair. It was one more mouth to feed, and there was little enough wherewith to feed those already there. Philip often discerned the wish that the child might be born dead 
or might die quickly. He delivered one woman of twins, a source of humor to the facetious, and when she was told she burst into a long, shrill wail of misery. Her mother said outright, I don't know how they're going to feed em. Maybe the Lord'll see fit to take em to himself, said the midwife. Philip caught sight of the husband's face as he looked at the tiny pair lying side by side, and there was a ferocious sullenness in it which startled him. He felt in the family assembled there was a hideous resentment against those poor atoms who had come into the world unwished for, and he had a suspicion that if he did not speak firmly an accident would occur. Accidents occurred often. Mothers overlaid their babies, and perhaps errors of diet were not always the result of carelessness. "'I shall come every day,' he said. "'I warn you that if anything happens to them there'll have to be an inquest.' The father made no reply, but he gave Philip a scowl. There was murder in his soul. "'Bless their little hearts,' said the grandmother. "'What should happen to them?' The great difficulty was to keep the mothers in bed for ten days, which was the minimum upon which the hospital practice insisted. It was awkward to look after the family, no one would see to the children without payment, and the husband tumbled because his tea was not right when he came home tired from his work and hungry. Philip had heard that the poor helped one another, but woman after woman complained to him that she could not get anyone in to clean up and see to the children's dinner without paying for the service, and she could not afford to pay. By listening to the women as they talked, and by chance remarks from which he could deduce much that was left unsaid, Philip learned how little there was in common between the poor and the classes above them. They did not envy their betters, for the life was too different, and they had an ideal of ease which made the existence of the middle classes seem formal and stiff. Moreover, they had a certain contempt for them because they were soft and did not work with their hands. The proud merely wished to be left alone, but the majority looked upon the well-to-do as people to be exploited. They knew what to say in order to get such advantages as the charitable put at their disposal, and they accepted benefits as a right which came to them from the folly of their superiors and their own astuteness. They bore the curate with contemptuous indifference, but the district visitor excited their bitter hatred. She came in and opened your windows without so much as a by your leave or with your leave, and me with my bronchitis enough to give me my death a cold. She poked her nose into corners, and if she didn't say the place was dirty you saw what she thought right enough, and it's all very well for them as as servants, but I'd like to see what she'd make of her own room if she had four children and had to do the cooking and mend their clothes and wash them. Philip discovered that the greatest tragedy of life to these people was not separation or death, that was natural, and the grief of it could be assuaged with tears, but loss of work. He saw a man come home one afternoon, three days after his wife's confinement, and tell her he had been dismissed. He was a builder, and at that time work was slack. He stated the fact and sat down to his tea. "'Oh, Jim,' she said. The man ate stolidly some mess which had been stewing in a saucepan against his coming. He stared at his plate. His wife looked at him two or three times with little startled glances, and then quite suddenly began to cry. The builder was an uncouth little fellow with a rough weather-beaten face and a long white scar on his forehead. He had large stubbly hands. 
Presently he pushed aside his plate, as if he must give up the effort to force himself to eat, and turned a fixed gaze out of the window. The room was at the top of the house, at the back, and one saw nothing but sullen clouds. The silence seemed heavy with despair. Philip felt that there was nothing to be said, he could only go, and as he walked away wearily, for he had been up most of the night, his heart was filled with rage against the cruelty of the world. He knew the hopelessness of the search for work and the desolation which is harder to bear than hunger. He was thankful not to have to believe in God, for then such a condition of things would be intolerable. One could reconcile oneself to existence only because it was meaningless. It seemed to Philip that the people who spent their time in helping the poorer classes erred because they sought to remedy things which would harass them if themselves had to endure them without thinking that they did not in the least disturb those who were used to them. The poor did not want large airy rooms. They suffered from cold, for their food was not nourishing, and their circulation bad. Space gave them a feeling of chilliness, and they wanted to burn as little coal as need be. There was no hardship for several to sleep in one room. They preferred it. They were never alone for a moment from the time they were born till the time they died, and loneliness oppressed them. They enjoyed the promiscuity in which they dealt, and the constant noise of their surroundings pressed upon their ears unnoticed. They did not feel the need of taking a bath constantly, and Philip often heard them speak with indignation of the necessity to do so with which they were faced on entering the hospital. It was both an affront and a discomfort. They wanted chiefly to be left alone. Then, if the man was in regular work, life went easily and was not without its pleasures. There was plenty of time for gossip. After the day's work a glass of beer was very good to drink. The streets were a constant source of entertainment. If you wanted to read, there was Reynolds or the news of the world. But there you couldn't make out how the time did fly. The truth was, and that's a fact, you was a rare one for reading when you was a girl, but what with one thing and another you didn't get no time now not even to read the paper. The usual practice was to pay three visits after a confinement, and one Sunday Philip went to see a patient at the dinner hour. She was up for the first time. I couldn't stay in bed no longer. I really couldn't. I'm not one for idling, and it gives me the fidgets to be there and do nothing all day long. So I said to Herb, I'm just going to get up and cook your dinner for you. Herb was sitting at table with his knife and fork already in his hands. He was a young man with an open face and blue eyes. He was earning good money, and as things went the couple were in easy circumstances. They had only been married a few months and were both delighted with the rosy boy who lay in the cradle at the foot of the bed. There was a savory smell of beefsteak in the room, and Philip's eyes turned to the range. "'I was just going to dish up this minute,' said the woman. "'Fire away,' said Philip. "'I'll just have a look at the sun and air, and then I'll take myself off.' Husband and wife laughed at Philip's expression, and Herb, getting up, went over with Philip to the cradle. He looked at his baby proudly. "'There doesn't seem much wrong with him, does there?' said Philip. He took up his hat, and by this time Herb's wife had dished up the beefsteak and put on the table a plate of green peas. "'You're going to have a nice dinner,' smiled Philip. "'He's only in of a Sunday, and I like to have something special for him, so as he shall miss his own when he's out at work.' 
"'I suppose you'd be above sitting down and having a bit of dinner with us?' said Herb. "'Oh, Herb,' said his wife in a shocked tone. "'Not if you ask me,' answered Philip with his attractive smile. "'Well, that's just what I call friendly. I knew he wouldn't take no offense, Polly. Just get another plate, my girl.' Polly was flustered, and she thought Herb a regular caution. You never knew what eyes he'd get in his head next. But she got a plate and wiped it quickly with her apron, then took a new knife and fork from the chest of drawers where her best cutlery rested among her best clothes. There was a jug of stout on the table, and Herb poured Philip out a glass. He wanted to give him the lion's share of the beefsteak, but Philip insisted that they should share alike. It was a sunny room with two windows that reached to the floor. It had been the parlor of a house which at one time was, if not fashionable, at least respectable. It might have been inhabited fifty years before by a well-to-do tradesman or by an officer on half-pay. Herb had been a football player before he married, and there were photographs on the wall of various teams in self-conscious attitudes, with neatly plastered hair, the captain seated proudly in the middle holding a cup. There were other signs of prosperity, photographs of the relations of Herb and his wife in Sunday clothes, on the chimney-piece an elaborate arrangement of shells stuck on a miniature rock, and on each side mugs, a present from South End in Gothic letters, with pictures of a pier and a parade on them. Herb was something of a character. He was a non-union man and expressed himself with indignation at the efforts of the union to force him to join. The union wasn't no good to him, he never found no difficulty in getting work, and there was good wages for anyone as had a head on his shoulders and wasn't above putting his hand to anything as come his way. Polly was timorous. If she was him, she'd join the union. The last time there was a strike she was expecting him to be brought back in an ambulance every time he went out. She turned to Philip. He's that obstinate. There's no doing anything with him. Well, what I say is, it's a free country and I won't be dictated to. It's no good saying it's a free country, said Polly. That won't prevent em bashing your head in if they get the chance. When they had finished, Philip passed his pouch over to Herb and they lit their pipes. Then he got up, for a call might be waiting for him at his rooms, and shook hands. He saw that it had given them pleasure that he shared their meal, and they saw that he had thoroughly enjoyed it. "'Well, good-bye, sir,' said Herb, "'and I hope we shall have as nice a doctor next time the missus disgraces herself.' "'Go on with you, Herb,' she retorted. "'How do you know there's going to be a next time?' End of chapter 113 Recording by Tom Weiss TomsAudiobooks.com